You're listening to a 3CR podcast. It's Radiothon time again at 3CR. This year marks 40 years of radical radio at 3CR, and we're asking you to keep us on air for another 40 years by donating your money to 3CR's Radical Radiothon, June 6 to 19. Call us on 0394198377 or visit us online at 3cr.org.au. Enjoy your podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning, it's Annie here on the mic for Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, cheerio to Kim, who's under the doona, and uh, Lalitha, who is preparing herself for uh, the election fight of her uh, career. She's put her name up as uh, a uh, Socialist Alliance candidate. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for uh, Lalitha's, uh, uh, you know, campaign and all the rest of it so but anyway I'm on the mic today and today we're going to go over to America I had a chat with uh, Vince Emanuel who's a uh, columnist and uh, he writes for Telesur but he also is um, a left activist in America and he he lives in Chicago and he's going to give us a bit of a, a lowdown on what's going on in the American election which, of course, being the grand empire of the moment, uh, does, of course, affect everybody. But uh, there's been um, a lot of interest in what's going on, especially since Trump has been given the uh, Republican um, uh, candidacy for the uh, election, which is uh, still Ongoing, ongoing. It just goes on and on and on in America. But, of course, we're in the midst of an election campaign ourselves, much longer than usual because of the double dissolution uh, trigger that the Liberals uh, improbably used to uh, start the election campaign early. Of course, it's going to be on July the 2nd and uh, it just goes on and on and on here as well. Uh, we're going to talk to Dr Noah Pazil, who is very interested in having a chat about not just the American election, but the Australian election as well, and uh, other bits and pieces that uh, have been thrown up. One of them has, of course, been this uh, rather bizarre uh, thing that's happened over the week, uh, this uh, Ros Award from uh, Latrobe, who, uh, in a um, comment in her private Facebook uh, account said uh, criticised the Australian flag, saying that it was uh, a uh, racist flag, and uh, it. Uh, she, of course, uh, Roz is a um, a leading light in the Safe Schools camp um, 
program, which has caused so much right-wing reactionary response. And uh, it's been used as a way of uh, hauling out all these weird and bizarre right-wing analysis of uh, left-wing politics. So that's a very interesting thing, and perhaps we can get uh, a bit of a a view from... uh, Dr. Pathil's view of uh, that kind of attack. There's been a whole range of other dirty tricks campaigns that are bubbling along in this election coming out of the Liberal um, side of politics, uh, which we might uh, have a a little look at later on. Um, We're going to also go back and uh, remember Hazelwood. Uh, I've got a rather interesting um, interview that um, my fellow... 3CR contributor Vivian Langford uh, put to air in February, Beyond Zero. She had a chat with uh, the great author Tom Doit, who wrote um, an award-winning oral history um, published by Penguin, The Coalface. Now, um, he uh, talks about it. I think it's worth revisiting the aftermath of the 2014 fire at Hazelwood. Uh, the reason for this is that the Greens have just sent out a petition uh, online for uh, people to uh, sign uh, about um, the closing of Hazelwood, um, NG. Uh, which is the name the the name that's now been given to uh, the company that owns uh, and runs Hazelwood, which is actually a uh, company that is uh, a majority owned by the French government. They're in the process. Um, you would have known them as. Uh, uh, GS Suez, but they uh, keep morphing. That's the thing about uh, corporations. They morph, they change their names, and uh, they're part of larger um, conglomerates. And But the government, uh, the French government's trying to get uh, to throw off its responsibility. And the Greens want people to be aware that um, the most polluting um, uh energy, uh, electric uh, coal mine, uh, coal uh, generator that we have in Victoria, Hazelwood, uh, is uh, they've got the option of um, selling it on to a shelf company and uh, the Greens are quite interested in, and so are 14,000 people who have actually signed this petition, are quite um, keen to uh, close it. Uh, But anyway, uh, we'll listen to the interview with Tom Doit because it's got some pretty compelling uh, information about uh, the effects for workers of that particular fire, which in some respects gets lost in the wash uh, as people talk about, you know, issues of um, environment and uh, corporate responsibility which are terribly important, but also individuals have been caught in the uh, machine and uh, it's, uh, it's actually uh, quite sobering and horrifying to hear how workers are disregarded in uh, the uh, rush to make profits. So that's after eight. And uh, uh, right now we're going to hear from, um, as I said, we're going to hear from... Uh, uh, Vince Emmanuel, about the American election. So let's move on. Um, But before we do, I've got to remind you. It's 40 years. Let the station's been around. I hope it's around for the next 40 years. CR has been a trailblazer. It's still 
the leader and the benchmark in terms of actually engaging the community. Keep the trail blazing. Support 3CR in our 40th birthday radiothon. From June 6 to 19. To donate, call 9419 8377 or go to 3cr.org.au. The role it plays is really, really, really important. And the role it plays in empowering people on a personal level, empowering communities and giving communities the power to actually take a bit of control of their future cannot be underestimated. That's right, the Radiothon. Now remember, $220,000 keeps this radio station alive. Uh, if you want to, uh, the way they operate it is that uh, hopefully you as listeners will contribute by ringing up and supporting your favourite programs. And uh, you could also go online, so uh, you can start now if you want to. But let's move on right now, this morning on Solidarity Breakfast, to Vince Emmanuel and his view of the American election. A question for activists in the United States, and just I guess to a lesser degree, the question for activists in a place like Australia as well is, so you have entities like Trump or you have entities like the National Front or the Patriot Group or whatever the right-wing goofballs are called in your country. And there's an element to that that's obviously explicitly racist. So that's clear. There's, they're, they're, Trump is playing to a racist reactionary element in American society that has exi- existed since the inception of America. Okay, so we've always had a white supremacist bent ideologically, politically, socially, culturally, economically in this country and, and also in, in, in your country as yeah, well. exactly. So, but that being said, you know, who, so some of Trump's supporters are extremely rich, wealthy white people. So wealthy, powerful, connected white people support Trump, but also the people who support Trump are working class or poor white people primarily in rural areas, but also in what we call the nation's rust belt. So these are areas that were formerly industrialized, areas that used to be highly unionized, places where men and women could live decently. These are places like Detroit, Michigan, Cleveland, Ohio, Gary, Indiana, south side of Chicago, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Buffalo, New York, those sort of towns. And even as, you know, towns that people would be less familiar with if it weren't for events in the last couple of years. So towns like Ferguson, Missouri. Mm. Here's an area that's extremely segregated. The area where in August 2014, Michael Brown, a black teenager, was shot multiple times. An unarmed black teenager was shot multiple times by a police officer, Darren Wilson, who was a white police officer. Okay. So those divisions exist. Those divisions are very real, but they're primarily based on a sort of racial ethnic analysis. What's missing from this equation and what the left has failed to do in the United States, and I'm, I, I'm not as familiar, but I would say, again, to a lesser degree in a place like Australia, has been to effectively organize working class and poor white people who often don't live in the city centers, who often live in what people in your country would call the suburbs, uh, or not the suburbs, um, 
gosh, how do you guys? I'm trying to think of the, the differences in terminology. Oh, so, so, so in the United States, we would call them the suburbs or rural areas. Oh well, we do have and, suburbs, but and also some of them are, are poorer. And we are actually in the midst of a group of people who are trying to bring those people to the fore. And in fact, I think they're learning. They're they're working off the same uh, book as uh, the people in America. Yeah. Sure, sure. And we see these trends also in Western Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe. The element that's missing here, if we break everything down to a racial and ethnic analysis, is that class analysis. So a lot of these working class, poor whites, let's say specifically in the United States, they've been left behind. They are just as impoverished in many uh, places and on many occasions as the African-American community in the United States or even more so than Latino immigrants. Um, You know, their rates of birth defects, drug addiction, suicides, murder rates. I mean, we could go down the list. Uh, That element of American society, working class to poor whites, people who formerly held manufacturing jobs, unionized positions with retired, you know, retirement yeah. funds and but, and, also, and so forth. And I'm also assuming that a lot of their offspring are the ones that have been soaked up to go to these uh, wars that are in- initiated by capital. You are exactly correct. You are exactly, you're, you're right on. I mean, and so all of this resonates. Now, as I mentioned, I'm sure before, do, do people genuinely believe that Trump is opposed to the war? Does Do people genuinely believe that once in office, Trump would reject uh, neoliberal trade agreements? That, I think, is probably a debate for a different day. But the point is, he's at least uh, giving credence to the already you know, sort of existing sentiment that exists among working class whites in the United States. And that sentiment is the government's not looking out for you. Corporations aren't looking out for you. The unions aren't looking out for you. And in many occasions, the unions have absolutely failed people. And instead of fighting the good fight and standing in solidarity with working class people, they capitulate to corporate interests and they capitulate to corporate interests to the point where now less than 7% of private sector employees are unionized in the in the United States. That's 6.3% of people who work in the private sector in the United States are unionized. So these people feel left behind by the unions, they feel left behind by the Democratic Party, they and rightfully so on both occasion, on in both instances, they feel left behind by the government, they're correct to assume that and they've been left behind by corporate America and they're correct to assume that. So Trump understands this, his advisors understand this. So they're playing to those folks. They're saying, hey, look, the trade deals, you're getting screwed with these trade deals like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and NAFTA. You're getting screwed. Your kids are being sent to, uh, you know, um, how would Trump say it? Unsuccessful wars, you know, wars that shouldn't have been fought in the Middle East when we should, you know, his, uh, his alternative, of course, would be to just simply bomb people. But yeah, actually, people that's interesting that- because uh, actually just bombing people didn't work in Vietnam. So that's an interesting uh uh, conundrums really isn't it it is i guess for those of us who would it, for people who would number one know that and no, <laughs> <laughs> number two for people who uh, are aren't going to take him at face value yes they understand that and but what's interesting with what you just said was how much you know i'm just i'm reading seymour hirsch as the great investigative journalist in the united states i'm reading his latest book called the killing of osama bin laden now it's not just specifically about 
the killing of Osama. It's also about how Barack Obama has processed that, not only the, that murder and not that assassination, but how he has used assassination techniques as the president, how much faith he has put into drone strikes and special forces operations and bombing operations, the likes we've seen in Syria, Libya, Afghanistan, Iraq. You know, we could go down the list. Um, so it's interesting. It's actually not just Trump. Now, Trump uses uh, more bombastic language. You know, he'll say that we'll make the Middle East into a parking lot. Um, and of course, we have the capability of doing so. The U.S. military could do that within a couple of days. And we could destroy an entire region of this world. I don't think people in the world quite understand the kind of firepower that the U.S. military has. Now, because of international norms, international mores, and to a lesser degree, international law, which the United States breaks all the time, um, but to a lesser extent, of course, you know, we're not going to, say, start dropping tactical nuclear weapons in the Middle East, though someone like Trump and even other Republican nominees have hinted that they might indeed be willing to use tactic, so-called tactical nuclear weapons in the so-called war against ISIS. So all of this can get very scary if we go down the rabbit hole of thinking about what it would look like with these different people being in the White House. But what, you know, I was just speaking with a good friend of mine, Kim Sipes, who's a professor here at a local university. He's a Vietnam vet. He's been an activist and a labor activist and worked with different movements around the world. And He's a great guy with a lot of knowledge. And he said, you know, Vince, I think there's a lot of fear mongering taking place with regard to Trump. And I said, well, yes, yeah, is true. I do think that some people are blowing it out of proportion, you know, like that. And, and really, a lot of this is coming from the Hillary Clinton campaign. So Hillary's new argument is, hey, look, like we have to Bernie has to drop out of the race and concede to me and just let me go after Donald Trump and stop criticizing me about all of the horrible policies and positions I've taken over the course of my political life. That's her argument. You know, Trump is made way worse. And, you know, I, France had the same sort of election, I want to say about 10 years ago, maybe even more. Yeah, I might yeah. be off on my date. But, you know, it was Chirac versus Le Pen. Yeah. And Chirac, had, having just been convicted, sort of owned it and said, look, I mean, they came up with campaign T-shirts that said, look, vote for the crook. Yeah. You know, vote for the crook and the criminal, not the fascist. Yeah, <laughs> and this right. is this is essentially Hillary Clinton's campaign. Is well, hey, look, yes, it's, I'm a it's little corrupt. It's interesting you should say that because uh, Susan Sarandon has recently been in Australia and she did an interview here, and I mean she's quite well known uh, activist as well as obviously an actress. Sure. And she says, uh, well, you know, I'm actually a bit scared of, of uh, um, Clinton than I am of Trump because of her ownership of. Uh, in fossil fuels and the maintenance of uh, uh, business as usual. Sure. I, and I, can, I actually think there's some legitimacy to that argument. Um, so I do think – and this is a real debate. I mean people often brush each other off when people bring up these issues. Now, let me be very clear. I personally won't be voting for either Trump or Hillary Clinton. Either I will not vote in the presidential election and simply vote in regional and local elections – or I will vote third party and I'll cast a vote for the Green Party candidate or even the Libertarian Party candidate. Um, that's fine with me. I have no problem doing that. And especially in the state in which I live, Indiana, this state or the state where I would do most of my work, Illinois. Illinois is a solid blue state, which means it's going to go for the Democratic nominee no matter what. 
And Indiana is a solid red state, meaning it's going to go for Trump no matter who runs against Trump, whether it's Bernie Sanders, Jesus Christ, (laughs) Hillary Clinton, Karl Marx. The (laughs) state of Indiana will be red. So for me, I have a little leeway. You know, I can my vote doesn't count in the presidential election as much as, say, someone who lives in a state like Florida or Ohio or Michigan or Arizona or Colorado or one of the states that could very well flip the election in favor of one of the other candidates. Now, those we call swing states, in those states, people have a very serious choice to make. And, you know, do I think she's more dangerous? I think we would have to ask ourselves, you know, what would play out? So the different contexts, I think, would would determine whether or not she would be more dangerous. So, for instance, if there was a terrorist attack, in the, when and if there's another terrorist attack in the United States, and with the kind of blowback that we've created over the last 15 years, I'm expecting them in the future, I'm expecting them in the near term, and over the long term. I don't think that the rest of the United States has taken that seriously enough, that we will, on some level, not just economically, politically, morally, and so forth, pay for the last 15 years of devastation and destruction that we've caused around the world, we are going to pay for it in human lives. Those days are coming. And that's something that I think we need to keep in mind. Now, if there's a terrorist attack in the United States before November, Donald Trump will be the United States, the next president of the United States. And I think things can become very dark. Um, I think there's, there's a, a trend in the United States. Uh, when these things happen, we have, You know, in in the past, we've seen how Americans have reacted to 9-11. We've seen how Americans have reacted even to an event like San Bernardino, the shootings in San Bernardino, or an event that didn't even happen on U.S. soil in Paris, France. So what did Donald Trump say right after that? He said, well, look, we'll ban Muslims for the country. Well, guess what? Now, the Democrats don't want to talk about this. Not only, of course, did the vast majority of Republicans agree with that position— so did the vast majority of Democrats. Yeah, no, that's so, a, yeah that, I mean, that's really interesting because here, the, you know, the effect here, uh, the um, government, federal government here is actually actively try, uh, going to try and pro- privatise the entire public service in Australia. And so the uh, union, the CPSU, the union here, was going to have uh, major strikes running through the uh, airport's during the Easter period. And, of course, this coincided with the uh, uh, latest uh, uh, um, terrorist uh, attack in, I think it was Belgium, right? And sure. uh, yeah, and so what that allowed the government to do was say that they were able to stop that union from having any strike action until after the election. Right. So, right. And this is how this is how these instances are going to be used. I mean, the, every intelligence, even the intelligence that the United States government produces itself comes to the same conclusion. And that is if the United States wants to stop terrorist attacks, they have to stop behaving like terrorists. Now, they don't say it in so many words, but these are CIA analysts. These are State Department analysts. These are former Pentagon officials. These are former military generals. Everybody and anyone who's very serious about the threat of terrorism, protecting innocent civilians and so forth, and there are people in those positions who take that job very seriously, they find out that once they're within an institution that thrives off of war and that the not only is the institution not too kind to people who don't promote those sort of policies, but they'll outright reject people who promote those sort of policies. But they understand very clearly. So, you know, 
how the question for us is what can we create as an alternative now i have to this is you know i didn't mean for this to become a dark conversation but let's be serious here part of the problem and i have been supporting bernie sanders from the very beginning so before i hear anyone say oh this is just another crazy lefty who everything's just not good enough for him let me be very clear i have put more time money and effort into sanders campaign than I have any other electoral campaign in the last 10 years that I've devoted myself to this work. So I have poured tons of time, tons of money, tons of effort, tears, and the whole thing into this campaign. And at the same time, half of my heart has been sort of ripped away from it. You know, I could only go sort of half-heartedly into this campaign. Why? Well, okay, Bernie Sanders talks about regime change. He talks about how bad regime change is. But as Jeremy Scahill just mentioned on Amy Goodman's program a few weeks ago, he has supported virtually every policy that Hillary Clinton has supported other than the war in Iraq. So the major division, of course, with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton when it comes to foreign policy is, yes, okay, so Bernie Sanders paid, you know, he gave a little lip service to the anti-war crowd and said, well, you know, I, I don't cozy up to people like Henry Kissinger. We should applaud him for that, but that's a pretty low bar. Doesn't mean that he didn't support the sanctions in the 90s. It doesn't mean that he didn't support UN and, and U.S. bombing in Kosovo in the 1990s. It doesn't mean that he didn't support regime change in Libya. It doesn't mean that he's taken a radical stance against Israeli occupation, although he has, again, paid lip service to the movement. But he hasn't taken a radical stance in his voting, his policies, or any of his speeches as a major politician with regard to Palestine and Israel. Um, and we can go down the list. The drone program, he said he would continue it. He, he's not a real alternative at all. I, I wouldn't say at all. And why would I say that? Because I do think that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump would be more inclined uh, to engage in occupations, wars, coups, and so forth, and probably expand the drone program beyond what we could even imagine right now. Mm. That's not to apologize for Sanders. That's just, I, I'm saying that as I think if we're serious activists and if we're trying to save people's lives, and that's literally what we're talking about when we're talking about the issues of war and militarism, if we're interested in saving innocent people's lives, then I would say that our best bet out of the options that we have would, of course, be Bernie Sanders, and that I do, in fact, think that there would be lives saved as opposed to a neoliberal or a neo-fascist in Donald Trump. Now, Noam Chomsky's made the point that all Bernie Sanders is, in reality, is a New Deal Democrat from the 1930s and 40s. So what does this tell us about American society and even global society? We've shifted so far to the right ideologically that just someone like Sanders, who doesn't even have a radical message, so he believes in health care. Yes, what every other industrialized nation in the world has. He believes that you shouldn't go broke going to college. Okay, these are all things that the United States used to enjoy in to, to some degree or another. None of this is new. So in some ways, we're just trying to make up for the losses and for the damage that's been inflicted by the right wing over the last 40, 50 years, where all of these things have, all these government programs have either been slashed or they've been privatized or those monies have been shifted to the military industrial complex. So, you know, the, the, the movement that's missing in the United States, and I would argue around the world, is a vibrant anti war movement. So we have a million people who are just marching in the streets 
of Paris. We have tens of thousands of Australians who are standing up against racism and injustices for immigrants and refugees. But we don't have a sustained, mobilized population around the world who is saying no to militarism. And all of these issues, of course, as I think you understand, and I'm sure many of your listeners understand, are directly connected to war and militarism. So there's no way to talk about the climate crisis without talking about militarism. And there's no way to talk about the refugee crisis without simultaneously talking about militarism within the context of climate change. There's no way to talk about economic austerity and the millions and millions of people who are living in poverty without talking about the trillions of dollars that we spend on wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth. You're listening to the Girls Radio Offensive on 3CR 855 AM or 3cr.org.au. For another episode of Music Songs from Tears. Welcome back to Burning Vinyl. You are on the Hipsters to Hop show. Welcome to the Celtic Folk Show. Yes, once again, it's time for Come On, Come In here on 3CR. 3CR has been providing reasons to dance since 1976. Help us keep you dancing. Any amount you can afford makes a real difference. So please call 9... 9- 419 8377 or visit our website 3cr.org.au. Any donation over $2 is tax deductible. 3CR, 40 years of radical movements. Yeah, the Radiothon is, starts on June the, the 6th, that's uh, Monday, and goes for two weeks. So uh, get out your change, get out your dollars, and uh, make sure that we're still on air for another. 40 years. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, we were just listening to uh, Vince Emmanuel, who comes from America and has got lots to say about the lead-up to the next US election. He uh, also went on to... Uh, it was a fabulous conversation. There's a lot more to it, and we may have a chance to play more of it. But uh, one of the things that he did say was that he had... Absolutely no expectation that uh, Bernie Sanders would run on a... uh, If he loses the uh, nomination, he expects that he will uh, ask his uh, backers to uh, fall into line with uh, Hillary Clinton. And this was uh, explained, that in actual fact, there is not a huge amount of difference in relation to foreign policy uh, outcomes, etc., from Bernie Sanders, because, of course, it's ultimately about winning the presidency, isn't it? Anyway, as I said, you're, we're moving on to our next uh, segment on the show today, and uh, it's uh, revisiting the uh, aftermath of the fire, the 2014 fire at Hazelwood. Now, Hazelwood, of course, is the uh, big uh, open cut down in Latrobe Valley, just just uh, a six-lane highway away from the uh, town of Morwell. It uh, caught on fire and, of course, being brown coal open cut, it was incredibly dangerous and uh, was burning for something like 45 days. And uh, there was an inquiry. Now, uh, the reason for why it's come up again, of course, is not just uh, the future of Australia's energy, which uh, some... uh, quarters of the money class seem to think that uh, there's still some life in having uh, coal mines Uh, and uh, even though the evidence around uh, human um, intervention when it comes to our survivability on the planet, 
because of uh, climate change that uh, humans are actively involved in uh, hurrying up our own demise <laughs> and open cuts and uh, coal mining as a way of uh, energising our civilizations, uh, even though it should be coming to its end. And you might have noticed that uh, in a recent article in The Guardian that uh, the wonderful Denmark, because of a high wind season, has actually uh, generated 140% of its own electricity demands uh, through wind power. So it is possible. However, let's go back to Hazelwood before we get too panicked about how we're going to turn on our electric lights uh, the uh, and, uh, and run our industries. Uh, anyway, Hazelwood is, very, is the most polluting uh, um, electric generating uh, source in, I think, Australia, in fact. Uh, the Greens have been on the case for quite a long time and other activists have been uh, on the case for a very long time calling for the closure of Hazelwood. Now that there's been the big fire... Uh, and uh, the uh, health outcomes and also the uh, issues of employment in Latrobe uh, have uh, been undermined. Uh, people had often sacrificed their health and their well-being because they wanted employment. But uh, that fire really put things into stark relief. Uh, and uh, this interview that was done in February with the author of The Coalface, uh, Tom Doit, by my fellow broadcaster Vivian Langford for, for uh, Beyond Zero the community show, which is played on Mondays at 5pm on 3CR, uh, revisits some of the key issues around Hazelwood and the sacrifices that communities, individuals and society pay when it comes to uh, maintaining such a venture. Uh, so we'll just let's hear from um, Tom as he speaks to Vivian. There was a, a mine fire inquiry, which is sort of one step down from a royal commission um, into the events surrounding the fire, being headed by uh, Sir Justice Bernard Teague, who, who headed the Black Saturday Bushfire Commission. Um, so the, the first inquiry actually happened in 2014, in the months immediately after the bushfire. But it, the terms of reference are really limited and it didn't even look at the health impacts on the community in any detail, which um, when the Andrews Labor government got elected in late 2014, they promised to reopen the inquiry. And thankfully, they have done that. So the inquiry has been going since May last year. And there's been a lot of really interesting findings. So there's four sections to the, the inquiry. One of them was looking at Anglesey, which is a coal mine down on the surf coast, which is closed. And that's sort of going fine. No problems there. No news there. <laughs> and then there's been two sections looking at the health impacts in the Latrobe Valley. So late last year, the inquiry found that, yes, there was an increase in deaths in the Latrobe Valley and that, yes, the minor fire was the most likely cause, which is a big, a big finding and which contradicts uh, all of the official messaging coming from the Department of Health and the Chief Health Officer, Rosemary Lester. any of us who read your book knows that you found that out and... Um, <laughs> in your book, you included anonymous testimony from yes. contractors, and I was very moved by that because some of them said they had been forced to work inside the mine, which was burning all around the edges, and they'd had to take their trucks down there without safety yes. equipment, and some of them were then told to avoid the CO2 testing stations. I imagine these were put up to test their health, how much CO2 was in their blood, 
they had to avoid those stations by going out the back gate. And then some of them said they were vomiting and unsafe, dizzy on the road. They should never have been driving those big trucks. And this was anonymously. At first it was on Facebook and some of them said it, I think, to uh, the CFMEU person. Yeah. Or to Naomi, yes. Well, yeah. um, were these people who were afraid of losing their job, you know, who gave that um, anonymous testimony, able to give testimony to the inquiry? One of the hardest things about this disaster for the community has been that some of the people who have been worst affected are actually the employees of the mine and the power station and also contractors sort of working to support those workers. And the firefighters um, too. Yeah, and, and the firefighters from the MFB and the CFA. And look, I'm actually writing a much longer book about this disaster, mm. which um, should come out next year, hopefully. Mm. And one of the things which has been sort of both, uh, I guess, exciting and quite uh, disturbing that happened since my, my small book, The Coalface, came out, is I've actually been approached by a couple of workers who, who wanted to share their stories with me. And I've heard some really horrendous stories from an employee who actually worked for three months on night shift, working seven days a week, 12-hour shifts, driving an excavated digger on top of the burning coal in areas that were too dangerous for the firefighters, the trained firefighters, to work on. The firefighters had um, breathing apparatuses, either, you know, respirator, dust masks or, or oxygen tanks. But this, this work crew um, of 15 people didn't, weren't given masks ever in a, in a three-month period. And this perfectly healthy worker is now dying of terminal lung disease. So David's story is just a horrible confluence of... Mm poor workplace uh, employment standards uh, meeting sort of horrendously complex industrial disaster sort of triggered by climate change and bad energy policies. Mm. Um, and look, one of the, the darkest and most kind of outrageous parts of, of David's story is that all of the work crew are on what are called on-call casual contracts, which means you get a call every morning confirming that, yes, you should come into work that day. And, and the way that David tells it... Uh, the second that anyone makes any complaints about any kind of safety standards on the site, they just stop getting that call. So you effectively lose your job, but you're still on the books, so you can't go on the dole or apply for other work. So there's this incredibly kind of precarious employment situation. You know, even though these guys are getting paid really good money, mm. they, they cannot, they've got no workers' rights whatsoever. Yeah. I want to know how criminal charges haven't been laid against the company, which is GDF Sewers. It's partly... Uh, part of the French government owned, isn't it? And uh, yeah. the inquiry found an increased number of deaths likely caused by the air pollution. How come it, uh, there's no criminal liability in all of that? Well, it's a very good question. And, and part of the, the problem is the sort of vagaries of corporate ownership. So the French government part-owned GDF Sewers, which is one of the largest energy utilities, I think it's the largest energy utility in the world. Um, GDF Sewers have billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of employees, and they own many small subsidiary companies, including Hazelwood Power Corporation, which owns the Hazelwood mine. So any criminal charges are going to be placed against Hazelwood. Um, and that's actually started, I think, about two weeks ago, WorkSafe Victoria announced that they're pressing charges against Hazelwood Power Corporation for 10 separate breaches of the Occupational Health and Safety Act, which includes basically uh, putting not having a safe workplace and putting your workers at risk, but also uh, putting the community uh, of the surrounding area, mainly Morwell, at risk. Um, so, so criminal charges are pending, um, probably in the magistrate's court, maybe the Supreme Court, and each of these charges have a maximum fine of $1.3 million at a magistrate's level and more in the Supreme Court. So 
Hayeswood Power Corporation could be looking at upwards of $13 million in fines. Mm. Um, and the EPA haven't pressed charges yet, but are expected to very soon. There's a lot of pressure on them from the, the state government. Um, one of the problems, or I mean, this is very good and it's very important, but one of the problems is is that Hazelwood, you know, if they do get stung with these massive bills, they might just declare bankruptcy and walk. And all of the profits that have been funneled off to GDF2 is just kind of are locked away. They're kind of, you know, there's a firewall up there. Um, so one of the very real possibilities in the next anywhere from sort of six to 24 months is that there'll be a very large lawsuit that finds um, Hazelwood Power Corporation criminally negligent and Hazelwood Power Corporation says, great, sorry, we don't exist anymore. Um, uh-huh. And we'll just walk away. Um, and the much larger problem there, and this is one of the other things that the Hazelwood Mine Fire Inquiry has been looking into, is what sort of mine rehabilitation o- options are left. Um, oh, that's cost millions, that sort of rehabilitation. Well, more like uh, hundreds of millions. Oh, um, yes. So there's a, there's a $15 million rehabilitation bond for the Hazelwood Mine, and I think Hazelwood Power Corporation have estimated it'll cost five times that, so more like $75 million fix it up, but um, other sources such as Environment Victoria are saying it's probably more like 250 to $350 million. Um, so if they, if they walk away, declare bankruptcy, they'll, they'll lose their $15 million bond, but that will still leave the state it's government cheap. perhaps $300 million in the red. Um, it's cheap for them. Well, we spoke to Senator Richard Di Natale a few weeks ago who'd been to Paris, and he said he did try to approach the French Prime Minister about this, and, and he did speak to French officials about this because it's a French yes. government thing, and they're, it's sort of in the pipeline whether they can get him to have a, a meeting with the French President or a conversation yes. even with him, but I feel there's huge there's huge shaming or um, yes. you know publicity needed about this because that's... I- Really, that's not a lot of insignificant little company, is it? Yeah, that's right. I 100% agree. And I was sort of, I was actually hoping that there would be more sort of international media scrutiny um, brought to bear on GDF Sewers, which is also called NG now, because mm. um, they change their names all the time, so they're hard to track down. I, I wonder I why not, that... Tom. You're a journalist. Why, why do you think there's not media scrutiny? Um, look, I think, well, I was hoping that when COP21 was happening in Paris that, that people would be joining those dots, and I was sort of making a little bit of noise about it. I, I think partly the problem is just this really opaque and confusing world of multinational global capitalism that we live in, where it is really hard to connect uh, patterns of corporate ownership. And it's, I mean, that's how multinational capitalism has evolved, so that um, accountability doesn't really exist in a meaningful way, and so that sort of responsibility can just dribble away. And, mm-hmm. and there have you know, there have been plenty of stories in the media in the last few weeks about, um, you know, coal mines in Queensland and New South Wales getting sold from one subsidiary to another for, you know, ridiculous costs. And suddenly the new owners, they, they can't afford the mine rehab, you know, there either. Um, but so I think, I think there's problems at a, at a fundamental level with the kind of... Um, world of capitalism that we've, you know, either inherited or allowed to sort of the cor- come around. The corporate ownership of the media, maybe, you know, it's keeping this story under the yeah. radar. Well, that, I mean, that doesn't help. And I guess as well, there's this woefully kind of um, toothless regulatory mechanisms where in theory there are these, um, you know, regulatory bodies to kind of keep companies in line. But in practice, they just 
are really toothless, you know. Mm. Um, and that's a sort of that's a problem of, of weak government and government being too friendly with corporations and too willing to sort of hope there'll be this win-win where, you know, free trade is great and everyone gets money. And it, I'm sure the corporations will look after us, the people. And yeah. oh, no. surprisingly enough, no, they don't. And that never happens actually anywhere ever. Just about. Okay. Listen, Tom. <laughs> this program is about community action on climate change, and yeah. I wonder if you could tell us what the Latrobe Valley people who you celebrate in your book, they really are heroes. They're yeah. worried about their local problem with their coal mine and a lot of them are employed in it. But yeah. what do they have in common with coal communities in other countries? Because city slickers like myself are sort of saying coal, mm. close the coal down. All the scientists of the world are saying leave it all in the ground. But, mm. you know, the people in these carbon-intensive communities are compromised and are now suffering yeah. these huge consequences. What do they have in yeah. common? Well, look, I think one of the things that I think has been really difficult historically but has really shifted since the mine fire has been this kind of mutual antagonism of identity politics between inner-city greenies and um, country coal industry people. You know, it's the greenies versus redneck debate that plays out in Australia and all over the world. Because for people down the Latrobe Valley, you know, the time I've spent down there, it's been so clear to me that there's not a hell of a lot of love for the... um, the corporate overlords that that run the power station, but it's sort of the only game in town for them. It's sort of like a Stockholm Syndrome scenario. Mm. They don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. And meanwhile, they don't want, pardon my French, any bloody greenies telling them what to do and trying to shut them down. So for for people in the Latrobe Valley, there's often been a sense that their backs are to the wall and they don't have any option but to keep getting what money they can from what employment they can. And in that, they're very similar to coal mining and industrial communities all over the world, including in... uh, Appalachia, you know, Virginia, Kentucky, places like that in America. And interestingly, this this great film, Overburn, I think it's a very similar story to the Hazelwood Mine Fire story in that you've got this very kind of like, you know, gritty and slightly beaten down community that are very loyal to the coal industry there because they don't really have any other option. And then this horrific accident happens that kills 29 people. And then these, you know, formerly pro-coal activists see everything differently. There's a real sea change moment and they start sort of reassessing the compromises they've made for their for their lives and start sort of campaigning for clean energy and alternative industry and and i feel like what's what's happening over in appalachia is is very similar to the trove valley where there has been a large shift down there and people are getting very excited about solar panels and wind turbines and tesla batteries and Mm -hmm. one of the best success stories i think in the latrobe valley is um the work that earthworker cooperative are doing in a nutshell for your listeners what earthworker does is employs local people to build solar powered hot hot water cylinders um and then it's a worker-owned cooperative so all the money stays in the community so it sort of solves all the problems it solves the problem of emissions it solves the problem of producing energy and it also solves problems of corporate ownership and opaque um, lack of accountability. So I feel like those sort of the moves to think small, think modular, think flexible and think community, there's there's a lot of um, excitement and energy around that in Latrobe Valley. Not, you know, a fraction of what's actually needed. it, It is really bleak down there, but those kind of innovative approaches are getting a lot more traction down there now because yeah. people are really looking askance at the mine and they know the operator is going to walk away yeah. any day now so they well, they really they need other options who is responsible for the post coal planning for the latrobe valley and how will we replace hazelwood's power that coal-fired power how's that going to be replaced i haven't heard well, anyone a, talk about it that's a great question and it's sort of a i don't know if it's a billion dollar question it's 
Definitely hundreds of millions. I mean, the latest inquiry um, report from the Mindfire Inquiry found that a lot more work needs to be done in this transition plan. And I think at the moment, there's some very exciting kind of innovative dreaming being done by community groups such as Voices of the Valley and um, other sort of transition networks down there. But at a sort of more... um, what seems completely lacking is any kind of federal vision. You know, I think some That's state right. vision would be good, but really we need federal vision. And probably Trobe Valley needs it the most, but there'd be plenty of other communities oh. in New South Wales and Queensland yeah. in similar situation. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion East or West when you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. And you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And the reason for why we revisited the Hazelwood issue, the fire, 2014, and the health issues and the uh, incredible uh, bind that uh, corporate uh, and government uh, involvement uh, and how it affects uh, the ordinary person and the worker... uh, It came back into the news right this week because of... um, a petition that was sent around by Ellen Sandal. She's the state MP for Melbourne and uh, she's a a representative for the Greens and uh, she sent out an email saying last week the French energy company Engie, which is uh, the morph, the new name for GDF Sewers, announced it's considering closing Hazelwood Coal Power Mine uh, station and that might sound wonderful, but uh, the next step towards the inevitable end of coal. But there's a risk that instead of closing Hazelwood, Engie will sell the coal plant to a shell company, which could keep Hazelwood polluting for years or let the polluters walk away from their responsibility to clean up the mine. Now, as the interviewer uh, said, Tom Deutz said, the cost of rehabilitating these mines, it nowhere resembles the bond that the companies have to pay at the beginning of the uh, process of running these places. Now, I mean, it's 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 absolutely incredible and staggering that uh, they will have have a bond of something like 17 million but in actual fact the cost will be you know in the hundreds of millions and it's a a, quite a cynical exercise now uh this Friday, I will send the replace Hazelwood petition to the President of France. This is uh, Alan Sandel, Francois Hollande, and the French Minister for Sustainable Development and Energy. Uh, add your name to the petition. So you have an opportunity to put your name to that petition too if you think that Hazelwood needs to uh, close down and that perhaps the buck stops with the company that owns it uh, at the moment. So uh, go to www.allensandel.com. That's E-L-L-E-N-S-A-N-D-E-L-L.com. Now, I've got something else to tell you before we go to Kevin. This is the week that was. The voice of West Palpua. 
has got a huge lineup of musicians on Tuesday the 14th of June at 7pm at Bar 303. It costs $10 to get in. It's, of course, to support their struggle. And uh, Bar 303 is, happily, at 303 High Street, Northcote. So be there or be square. Uh, let's move on to uh, the week that was, because I know you're sitting at the edge of your seats. A weak solidarity, Bricky Teen Lister, when with four more long weeks of this election fever that has us so intrigued to go, last week we said five weeks, doesn't time go slowly when you're not having fun, to help us decide which square the shaking hand will land on, our very special week that was election coverage, capturing all that excitement that has Trubler was in a fever. The You Can't Trust the Socialists Award of the Week, I, I would have called it the Socialist Bastardry Award, but we're too nice to use that language on the week that was, to poor big economic guru Scuttle Them More Lash Sun and big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull after they unveiled the huge, huge, huge black hole the Socialist promises would excavate in the sacred earth of the budget, only to have to admit after a few very simple basic questions from the assembled ministers Media who, after all, are not exactly mortal enemies of the caring business class party, not the most laser-like cross-examiners, admit, OK, may- maybe it wasn't quite as huge as we thought or thought you'd believe, or more importantly, thought the true Aussie people would believe, indeed at best only about half as deep if that, but did they stammer red-faced and apologise for getting it so spectacularly wrong? Well, we all know the answer, as Scuttle them explained. The guilt for them getting it so spectacularly wrong lay fairly and squarely with the Socialist Party itself. (laughs) No, no, I've got no idea, but Scuttle them said so, so it must be true. Some subliminal sleight of hand leger to man poor Scuttle them and Malcolm fell for. Don't know whether to send the You Can't Trust the Socialist Award to Scuttle them or Little Billy Short and Ambition. Oh, come on, let's give them one each. By the way, Malcolm added, my superannuation policy is that duly bash up the workers should be superannuated. Hmm, don't know where that came from. The, the independent who has his own party and candidates must be the independent party, Nick Xenophony, so-called because he's obviously a phony independent, said the trouble with politics is it's such a fight between the left and the right, meaning he's obviously light years ahead of us because he's found the left. I can't wait for him to tell us where it is. Obviously, the weight of public office hasn't taken its toll on Nick because somehow, not sure how, but notice his hair is still blacker than black, not a sign of grey. Party heavies turning white, we suspect, out at McEwen, where the caring business class candidate Chris German, the works, thought he was the smartest thing since Peter Duffer by crashing a meet-the-people visit by Little Billy, taking advantage of the media, great telecoverage and all that, promoting just how smart he is. Until, how dare they? The media asked him a few tricky questions about caring business class health policy, like, what is your health policy. At this point, poor Chris fled his big media opportunity, and when they cornered him down the road, he fingered what's wrong with this country. This is where satire just can't compete. Direct quote. 
I suggest that this kind of interrogative journalism is exactly what's been wrong with Troubler Aussie politics over the last few years. And with that, he picked up his gear and took off again. So while we complain the media doesn't put politicians under anywhere near enough pressure, ask enough probing questions, German the work says they have no right to ask any, which is understandable when they go beyond the norm by asking what his policy is. For the record, Chris said he knew, but he wasn't going to tell them. Speaking of Peter Duff, we've got a job for him, the latest pisser awful acronym, Program for International Student Assessment Results, showed True Blue Aussie 15-year-olds slipping further behind in literacy and numeracy skills. Just the job for Super Pete. Eradicate the problem by sending all 15-year-olds to Nauru and Manus Island with all the other illiterate, enumerate, job-stealing dole bludgers. Monday, Malcolm met a rat. No, no, a real one. While out, that is Malcolm out, on a meet-the-people walk somewhere or other. Well, meet-the-people, the spin doctors and security deemed safe to get through the human barriers walk. Like all politicians, Malcolm would have felt so comfortable, most at home, meeting a rat. We can be sure Tiny a bit more for the bosses would agree. That was the week that was special in-depth election report. Hope it helped us decide. Debate has arisen over whether guys should be used to address men and women. Is it generic or is it generic? Must say I'm surprised women don't object to being called guy, although given the alternative would be dull, guys and dolls, maybe women just think guy has to be better than that, although I also object to blokes being called the ubiquitous guys. But my objection, and why I never use it, is its place in the steamrolling Americanization of our language, the cultural hijacking. That, I argue, is what we should be objecting to. A Melbourne economics professor has attacked the socialist policy to retain the upper tax level, in other words, not lower the tax level for the filthy bloated, because he argues it would spur tax avoidance. How it must hurt, cut the filthy bloated, to have to avoid tax. Don't those socialists have a lot to answer for? We put the big question to prominent filthy bloated Rick Ripoff. Uh, Rick, what level should tax be reduced to to prevent people like you indulging in a bit of tax avoidance? Well, top of the head, naught, or something sub-naught springs to mind. Uh, but, 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 but how can it be sub-naught? Uh, surely you understand, you pay no tax, which is sensible tax planning, and receive lots of subsidies, handouts, concessions, so those who do pay tax because they work for a living pay us not to pay tax. Win, 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 win. Uh, for you. Who else is there? Uh, so you advocate a tax rate of naught for everyone? Good God, no. Workers must meet their responsibilities. Someone has to pay for what we claim as the sub-naught bit. Oh, thanks, Rick. Pleasure, pleasure. Anti-racism has finally been put in its long overdue place. At long last, anti-racism, tolerance, belief that we're all equal, have a right to be ourselves, has been declared the most heinous of crimes, an argument for bringing back capital punishment. Just when we thought capital punishment is what capital does to the 90% of people who haven't got too much of it. Bringing back capital punishment and bringing out almost the entire Victorian... 
uh, sorry, police, uh, police force to track down these evil criminals who say we shouldn't hate people because of their colour, race, religion. And we must love them if they're filthy rich or put on a uniform to protect the filthy rich, to protect those who believe we must hate people because of their colour, race or religion, to protect the true blue Aussie flag which represents from its genesis the very basis of invasion and racism, the very symbol of qualities that must be admired. Choosing to hold a rally declaring anti-racism, countering the swastikas and true blue Aussie flag is asking for trouble, asking for violence, not as some long-haired commie greenie wooden worker and iron lots might unpatriotically, unpolitically correct suggest allowing the swastikas and true blue Aussie flags to win. We like, you know like... Our week that was, police spokesperson, Senior Sergeant Bernie O'Pig told us in an exclusive interview, believe like these swastika neo-fascist, neo-thingies have a right, you know, like, to be themselves and the anti-racist, you know, like, criminals have no right to, like, you know, prevent them expressing like themselves, like, you know. Uh, thank you, Senior Sergeant, beautifully put. Public transport, trains and trams were also thrown into disarray Saturday due, the announcement on the station said, to police operations. Hmm, obviously public transport and anti-racism are both threats to public order. Why all train passengers, no matter where they were going, had to be searched and delayed for ages. Anti-racism and public transport, both serious, heinous crimes. On non-elections for a new big supremo, the US of the UN of the US of the world has endorsed the palace coup overthrow of Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff as a fine example of liberty, freedom and especially democracy. Owing to corruption, the neoliberal coup leader said, charging her with doing what every president before her had done to balance the budget, no personal gain whatever. Unfortunately for the new big supremo, Mikel Temer, he's also lost half his cabinet in a week or so due to real corruption, including the Minister for Corruption, who lived up to his title. Most of them sprung on secret tapes trying to fix court cases about corruption and or plotting the overthrow of Rousseff, although Temer says the Minister for Corruption should stay on, presumably because he knows all about it and knows where the bodies are buried and therefore where not to look for them, where not to dig. But sadly for the economy, all this is getting in the way of privatising any profitable state enterprise that moves and imposing, reluctantly of course, austerity measures on those who were finding life just a little better under Rousseff. So finally, imagine how bad things would have been if she'd been worse than just a left parliamentary Democrat. Oh, and if that sends shivers down little Billy's spine back here, don't worry, little Billy, I said left. Good morning. Yeah, good on you, Kevin. It's fascinating to have followed that particular uh, uh, event in South America because the uh, Guardian and uh, all of the mainstream newspapers were uh, uh, darkening her name incredibly. So the it the forest was uh, of... Uh, 
that she was a deeply corrupt individual was uh, quite uh, hard to overcome if you were trying to find facts on that particular issue in the mainstream media. And on the phone we've got at the moment is uh, Dr Noah Pasil, who is going to talk to us about what's going on here. And, of course, that's got to do with uh, the mainstream media as well. G'day, Noah. How are you? Good, thank you. And yourself? I'm good. Yeah. How's the baby? Oh, he's going well, yeah. He's just over four months. He's, uh, yeah, he's thriving. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, in, in fact, uh, my... Uh, Brother has just had a baby, and I meant to tell people that uh, June the 1st was actually the International Day of Children. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, he, and uh, this new little baby, Felix, was born on that day, so that's oh, pretty auspicious, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, we've got lots to talk about. Uh, the, um, the, the Australian election, there's been lots and lots of uh, dirty tricks campaigns going on at the moment under uh, percolating the Liberals uh, really bringing out uh, right-wing sort of uh, initiatives to undermine any sense of uh, stability in this country at the moment. Have you been noticing that? Oh, I think it's an ongoing... uh, It's been ongoing for some time. Uh, I don't know how much traction some of that gets, though, beyond the sort of 25 30% of uh, people who are... Rusted on liberals. Um, I think some of it actually, some of that actually pushes people away. And we saw a poll this morning that suggests that Labor might be ahead for the first time um, in the election. I, you know, I, I, I tend to think that uh, some proportion of the voters are actually more savvy than um, a lot of people give them credit for. That they're actually feeling quite dispirited by the um, the approach that the Liberal Party has taken. Now, you know, Labor's approach isn't uh, hugely different in many ways, and I guess that's part of their strategy, is not to seem a a big target. But there are some notable differences, and I think, actually, some of those notable differences are striking a chord. Um, And that's probably, I think, a response to the shift of the last few years, where we've seen, I think, the sort of hardness of or the, the, the realities of uh, neoliberal politics just become more and more obvious to people. And we've got Corbyn in the, US, in the UK, Sanders in the US. I mean, these are two politicians who were um, unfathomable, un, we would have, uh, incomprehensible for them to be even um, competitive, you know, three, four, five years ago. And here they are now. You know, with some level of support, they may not have enough to actually get over the line, but nonetheless, they're making huge inroads into what has been a dominant discourse for a long time. And yeah, that's quite interesting. I, I just saw a Facebook thing with Corbyn uh, being asked by a collected group of uh, mainstream media why uh, the question was uh, why doesn't uh, why don't your members of the Labor Party know what your policy is on a particular thing? And Corbyn just got to the mic and said, well, you know, actually it's got probably got a lot to do with uh, mainstream media's ability to actually report and then yeah, it just goes into this huge uh, uh, clapping of all the other people who are in the room I think people are really the cats out of the bag I think so I mean the whole stuff with Fox and Murdoch or Murdoch and um, um, news of the world and the sort of um, collusion between senior politicians and senior media people like him exposed something that 
people were aware of, but to some extent, but not willing to, to sort of see in a conspiratorial turn, way. And that, I, I think that's turned a little bit. Um, I mean, not, not entirely. No, uh, no. Reality, the, well, the reality, it's like advertising works. It does. And I mean, I'm not trying to overstate how much things have shifted, but they certainly, in my mind, they've shifted. I mean, they've shifted in the sense that there is a stronger, I think there's a stronger pull away from the, the sort of right. It's probably only towards the centre, but nonetheless, that's still some uh, progress from what we had a few years ago. Um, and partly that's to do with the fact that the right has gone so far to the right that it's made a lot of people quite uneasy. Um, I think we are living in quite polarising times where the right, where we're seeing a right and a sort of a centre and nothing in between. Um, and that's dangerous as well. We, we have witnessed the rise of quite far-right parties in uh, Europe in particular, but also the Tea Party in the, the US, of course. And here we have an undercurrent of really rabid right-wing um, um, elements as well that are sort of still quite embedded in um, and, and quite vocal. But, I, I, you know, increasingly I think people are sort of... They're being exposed, and there's a bit of a gap between themselves and um, and the and the centre, and I, that's a positive move. Um, well, it's it's interesting because uh, one of the things that's most obvious is on the mainstream uh, commercial stations is at the moment these ads for if it doesn't add up, speak up campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your yeah, feeling I, on that? Well, I don't really know too much about it, except uh, again, I. I, I think people are. I think there's a there is a sense that the sort of apathy of the last twenty or thirty years in politics. I, I mean, I was in a classroom the other day and I said to students, you know, there's a view that your generation is apathetic, <laughs> and um, what do you make of that? Politically apathetic or lethargic or disconnected? And they said, yep, we are. I think we are. Like the the sort of general tone of the discussion was, we are when it comes to formal politics, but we're looking for other ways to be political. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Um, you know, and they talked about the sort of things they do on social media, the sort of organisations they're involved in, the different ways they speak to each other, their peers around political issues. So I don't think they're depoliticised. I just think that they're disconnected from formal politics for obvious reasons. I mean, formal politics has failed um, in many ways uh, since probably the end of the... Whitlam era in Australia um, to to really show any leadership and vision for the future. Maybe there was a brief moment during Hawke Keating and then later Keating, but only in terms of shifting Australia towards a neoliberal program. I mean, Keating was a, of course a um, an interesting figure because in some ways he predicted the way that the global economy was going and he shifted Australia in that direction. He also was visionary on a whole range of social issues that you know, if he had won in 96, Australia might be a different country in mm. some ways. Maybe it wouldn't have been. Uh, maybe we wouldn't have been. I'm not sure. But Well, you know, the argument is always that you follow the money and it's all about, econ- you know, the economics of things. But uh, Yeah, and I, and I disagree with that, to be yeah. honest. I think, I mean, the economy plays a large part. No, no doubt that the material, you know, sort of material level shapes and might, I don't think it determines, but I think it shapes or, or, or gives a lot of influence on how, um, you know, political and, and um, ideological um, 
um, sort of levels work, but there's still some sense that the ideological uh, um, or, or the way that we think about the world also impacts on the material. Yeah, but uh, and, and I don't think yeah, and I don't think that being pragmatic, i.e., you know, how are you going to feed yourself and all the rest of it, means that you have to be a greedy bastard. No, not at all. And the thing is that for a large proportion of Australians, that uh, those questions aren't as crucial as they might be in, you know, I don't know, Botswana or, mm. you know, um, Nicaragua, for example. Or Bosnia. So, so we shift out of that material at times to think about, you know, the social, cultural elements of what sort of society we live in. And and that opens space for change, That we're, the changes we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, there's still a great deal of struggle over, you know, Indigenous rights, um, um, racism... Um, um, home, uh, GLBT rights, a whole range of other, um, you know, sort of so environmental, all those social issues, or well, I guess the environment isn't social, but those social issues. Well, the, actually, the, the environment is economic, and that's it a is, perfect yeah. example of how uh, pragmatism and uh, an economy is being denied by uh, a whole group of people who believe that, uh, or the system that is neo neoliberal. Yeah, indeed, and um, I mean, all of those are economic in in one way or another as well. I mean, you know, indigenous rights, uh, play, you know, land rights, mining, yeah. whole range of things. I mean, to I mean, point- I would argue that every uh, policy around ab- uh, Aboriginal uh, or indigenous uh, empowerment. All, all governments, uh, for a very long time, every issue uh, that relates to Indigenous people in Australia uh, is actually policy around mining. Oh, look, there's a large part of that. I mean, that all goes back to the 19th century and, you know, um, um, pastoral rights and a whole range of other things. And, but um, whilst I agree with that, there's also an element of racism and um, historic uh, discrimination that shapes the way that Indigenous people who don't live in areas where mining is a major major um, economic issue are uh, impacted on. I mean, you know, there was a... There are stories about... Uh, there was a story the other day about the uh, cultural de- defacement um, of... Uh, sorry, the de- defacement of a uh, heritage site, Aboriginal heritage site. Yeah, shame um, job. Sorry? Shame job. And but I mean that you know the, the the laws around protecting those is so weak and so um, diluted that there's no real punishment for whoever does it. You know there's a sense that mm. you know those the legacy the, of or, or the history that we deny Indigenous people any cultural dignity or any cultural heritage. Um, still shapes that policy. I don't think that's necessarily about mining rights. No, but, that's right. And actually, that's funny you should bring that up because it it falls straight into this controversy that's just recently happened around uh, uh, the academic at La Trobe University yeah. and her private, in fact, conversation on uh, Facebook about uh, uh, making a, a joke about how, um, more or less a joke, that uh, now it's time for us to change the racist flag on um, uh, Parliament House. Uh, this this incredible devotion to uh, the Australian flag and what it represents. I mean, she it's actually turned now because uh, the lawyers have sent letters to Latrobe and said that we're going to we're going to take you to court. 
and Latrobe has uh, 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 reinstated her. But it's a fascinating attack on someone's personal opinions. Yeah, it, it is. And um, you're right, it's a knee-jerk reaction. Um, it demonstrates how, um, you know, sort of how sacri- how much sort of, I don't know what you call it, sort of sacredness is given to these sort of national Im- um, images. Um, and, you know, it goes against all the sort of principles around academic freedom um, and and also, I think, the right of people to make, um, you know, sort of controversial comments in their private lives as well. No, no, it's outrageous. Uh, it's, I mean, it's also, interestingly enough, Ros Ward is one of the uh, consultants around and developers of the Safe Schools program. So it right. all just... And then, interestingly enough, the tele, Sydney Telegraph uh, paper has this article in there by a woman who is... Um, about this particular issue, and they attack Ros Ward and talk about her as being a hardened activist and even goes on to this thing about uh, she writes for what they call a bizarre echo chamber forum such as Red Flag. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, that's the pot calling the kettle black. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. Um, Look, and I'm not surprised, and we shouldn't be surprised the Telegraph would take that position. Um, you know they, but it really shows you the line that's being drawn by the liberals. See themselves as a centralist party, but in actual fact, they are flirting deeply. They're in a love affair with the far right. Oh yeah, I, I agree. I mean that that uh, I mean wasn't didn't Turnbull head a fundraiser for a far right or a, a far right religious organisation during the week? You know, Corey Bernardi uh, has been out uh, in the huskings talking about a whole range of things that, you know, are quite ludicrous in some ways. Pete, Peter Dutton. I mean, that, that in many ways, the legacy of the Abbott, um, or not the legacy, but the Abbott cabinet still um, is, is still fundamentally the Turnbull cabinet. I mean, he really he shuffled a few of the decks, but you've got people like uh, Dutton, Barnaby Joyce, of course, whose uh, comments during the week... Uh, um, um, remind us of, you know, where the Liberals sit on things like um, live... Uh, sheep live, exports. Sheep exports, you know, just a horrific practice. Um, and on refugees. Um, you got Kevin Andrews um, and a whole range of others. I mean, the list of the people who are still incredibly influential and the Liberal Party sh- should remind us of how far right that party is, even under Turnbull. And, you know, Turnbull's um, ideological position on a whole range of social issues might, and I think it does for many people, obscure the fact that he is an incredibly far right politician on material and, and, um, and economic issues. That's exactly um, true. That, I mean, it's quite extraordinary. The, uh, I mean, if it wasn't going to make a person scared, the business about uh, privatising the uh, public service, yeah. uh, I, I, I mean, really, that it's an end game for Australia, uh, this kind of stuff. I mean, I know that you shouldn't be alarmist, that, you know, the good fight must be fought, but this election is really about changing the face of this country. Yeah. I, I agree, and um, you know the the way the ABC, for example, has been 
um, treading water, or not treading water, but being really treading, treading on eggshells or um, to try and placate the Liberal Party just demonstrates to me how scared they are of potential privatisation or a, a sort of the huge de- um, uh, degrading of their position. Yeah, no, it's like it's like watching uh, the a uh, child who's who's uh, in the hands of of an abusive parent. Yeah, they are they are showing the, the sort of fear and um, care that for me just shows that they are very very aware that if the libs win and um, that they'll be in the in the firing line. Oh yeah, most uh, definitely. And you know the other thing that's really disturbing is the level of unethical behaviour uh, emanating out of the Liberal Party. I don't know if you heard about this, but apparently the Liberals launched a website, which is a Tinder-style website for matching businesses with desperate young job seekers. Right. Um, and they were to offering jobs at a four dollar an hour rate, and uh, it was. Uh, Acting and people were asked to, you know, put their names down and give all their details and stuff. And they were acting as if they were actually some sort of governmental uh, inspired website. But in actual fact, it was uh, a Liberal Party device, which they yeah. were sprung doing. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that, that's the future of job, job searches in Australia. You know, it'll be, um, it'll, it'll be open to competition, and competition means driving down wages and conditions. But they're and, unethical. They're unethical. Oh, they're, well, that, that, I mean, you know... That's unethical behaviour. It's unethical behaviour. It's unethical, um, but it's also unethical in the sense that people deserve wages that... Oh, yeah. You know, they, that they goes with that. wages same. and conditions that uh, allow them to live, you know, sort of uh, lives that nourish them. And that the direction we're heading in is if you've got a job and you're earning a pittance, then you should be, um, then you you, sh- you should feel fortunate because um, because the the government or, or the economy is strong, and it's this discourse around the economy has to be privileged rather than the people within it. That I think the Labor Party, if it, if it wants to be a genuine. Uh, alternative to the Liberal Party, it needs to shift the way it talks about the economy from one that is economically focused to socially focused. That is, we want a strong economy for a better Australia for Australians, not we want a better economy for a better economy. Yeah, and, that's right. Um, you know, and that was the slogan that the Indignados used during the um, protest against austerity in Spain uh, around 2011 and 12. You know, it was this idea that uh, they want a society, not an economy. Yeah. Um, they kept saying, you know, we are a society, not an economy. Uh, that's the sort of shift in thinking and speaking that we need here in Australia as well. We need to talk about what economic growth or development or prosperity means for people's lives rather than the other way around. What do people's lives mean for a strong economy? And um, the Libs are never going to move into that space, uh, not in our lifetime anyway, but Labor could with a little reorientation uh, a little rethinking of the way they present their message. Um, the Greens do to some extent. Um, it's very interesting, the Greens, because uh, all the, I mean, I don't know, the uh, you get influenced by uh, visuals and uh, the the latest picture of Dita Tali uh, flanked by two men of the same size and uh, wearing the same kind of suits was almost sinister. <laughs> 
thought mm. it was really strange. Uh, in the past, they like to present themselves with uh, in a more varied look. I was wondering what that was all about. Um, well, again, they may be trying to make themselves a small target. It could just have been a coincidental moment that the media decided was useful for, you know, re, you know, sort of packaging the greens in a particular way. Uh, we see a lot of that photography. You know, the photography of the environmental protesters is always the person with the um, with the dreadlocks and the tattoos, not you know the. I don't know the suburban the, mum who comes the to the mums who are there as well. You know, it's a way of packaging things so that it looks ra- things look radical or un- people are uneasy with it. So it might have been that moment, or it could have just been that uh, you know the Greens are trying to enter into the mainstream political. Uh, now that Bob Brown, you know, shifted from Bob Brown to Di Natale, they might be looking to become more mainstream and 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 centrist rather. Do, than... do, do you get that sensibility? I uh, I don't know if it's the reporting. Uh, because uh, uh, some of their uh, messages seem to almost be contrary to uh, their past messages. Uh, in the recent, um, uh, in Coburg, I don't know if it's reached your uh, ears, but in Coburg there was an anti-racist rally, uh, yeah, and yeah, 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 and it was completely packaged by the mainstream media as a violent. And in fact, the uh, Herald Sun here is now dubbing it a riot, which of course it wasn't. Uh, the pictures are all of uh, you know. Uh, limited uh, skirmishes, uh, failing to actually uh, show the police only um, pepper spraying the anti-fascists, which is what par for the course. Yeah. Um, and uh, also uh, in uh, this big attack on uh, the young uh, leftists who are in have been inspired by the. Uh, Activities of German anti-fascists uh, who and they wear a mask around themselves and wear black clothes so that they are unidentifiable. Now there's this big push to uh, and they are actively protecting their uh, lect- leftist colleagues in at these events, um, and uh, it's now being implied that they are the sinister ones. Yeah, and that's the that's the packaging. Can I just uh, relate a, a story that someone told me the other day? I've been trying to find the article on it, and I will. But there was uh, just a, on the on this topic of the far right and this sort of lunacy these days. Uh, there was a story in the U from the US where some right wing neo Nazi types uh, attacked a mosque by throwing sort of pork sausages and stuff uh. at it and spray painting and whatever. And then after that, they this is a, what I was told by a very good source um, that uh, the story then related how they went to a vegan shop and uh, with necklaces made of sausages around their necks uh, throw, and throwing sausages at the vegans. Um, now, you know, this is that, again, this is that right-wing um, uh, conspiracy theory that the left and the Muslims are in some alliance to bring down, you know, white civilization. Um, but, and if that's if I can find that story, um, mm. I'll, I'll tell. They it. don't like to share, do they? Well, I don't like to share, but they've <laughs> also got this incredibly, I think, just incredibly crazy notion that uh, you know people who are environmentally or socially progressive uh, and Muslims are in some sort of conspiracy to bring down our world, and that's a sort of Cory Bernardi, um, Andrew Bolt. I mean, Andrew Bolt's been in fine form over the last few weeks with Nova Paris and a whole range of other racist comments uh you know but his line is 
white civilization is under, under attack from feminists, indigenous people, Muslims, and any left-wing organization he can name. You mean the people um, in general? Just people in general, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that resonates with a, yeah, certain, I know. Yeah. with a certain group of people. I mean, that's what the Tea Party thrive on, is that notion. The problem, the real problem, or the really scary thing, is that that has a mainstream audience. It's not just on the fringes. No, no, it's a cartoon. It's the cartoon that they've uh, yeah. been able to establish. In fact, there was a really fantastic little bit of uh, thing on Facebook where a person says it's got a, a black hand and a white hand inside, uh, on side angle, and it says uh, racism isn't an opinion, it's an offence, <laughs> yeah. which is actually true. It is absolutely true. It is absolutely true, and here we are living in you know, I think as racist times as I can remember. Yeah, no, it's incredible. Um, and, you know, I grew up in the 70s when uh, the word wog was almost used as as uh, often as mate or um, any other uh, signifier. And yet I feel that racism today is worse than it was in the 70s. Mm, yeah, um, they've, put, they've put the kindling uh, in the fire and made it yeah. bigger and bigger. Yeah, Thanks for spending some time scary. with us this morning. Uh, We've come to the end of the program. It's unbelievably true. I'm sorry if I've interrupted you too much. It's the conversation's always interesting with you. It is indeed, and I've had a good time again this morning. Uh, Annie, good to talk to you. Yeah, talk to you soon, eh? Okay, bye. Bye. Yeah, well, that was uh, the end of the show. As I said, we've only got three minutes to go. This is Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, Annie signing off. We uh, talked to Vince Emanuel about the American election to begin with. Then we went on to revisit the Hazelwood fire in 2014 and its aftermath. Uh, We heard Kevin telling us about... uh, this is the week that was, and we've just finished a chat with Dr Noel Pazil about uh, some worrying uh, elements within Australian society as we lead to the two th- uh, 2016 July 2nd election. Coming up is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go out with a bit of Amy because Amy's fabulous. You've just been listening to a podcast produced at 3CR Community Radio. 2016 marks 40 years that 3CR has been bringing you independent community voices and we're asking you, our listeners, to keep us going for another 40 years by donating to our Radical Radiothon this June 6 to 19. This year we need to make $220,000, so any amount you can afford makes a big difference. 
Call us on 0394198377 or visit us online at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for supporting Community Radio.